stand. We'll be in Matthew 26 as the pastors and elders come forth. I want to wait till we're all served and then we'll partake together as we celebrate communion this morning. The first Sunday of the month, Matthew chapter 26, I'd like to open with some prayer. Father, we pray that as we are obedient to your command to remember you in this way, that we would be reflecting on the work that you have done for us. That no matter where we are this morning, in the deepest valley or the highest mountain, Lord, we come to you by faith in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. As we take this token and we crush it between our teeth, we know that as he's speaking these things, later that same day, he will be crushed himself on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he will say, it is finished. As we crush this between our teeth, we remind ourselves that it's not our works that brings us to him. It's not what we do. It's not how we serve. It's not the worship that we bring. It is his body that was broken for us as a propitiation for our sins. He has done the work and made us whole. And so let's all pray together and we partake and remember his work. Lord, we thank you for your body that is broken and shed for us. We thank you for your grace that you bestow and you give us this cleansing through your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's partake. And as the pastors and elders come forth, let's wait till we're all served once again and we'll partake together. And in verse 27, it says, Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We know from Scripture that oftentimes as Jesus is speaking this way, the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. Even though he's been very clear that he is going to die, he will be in the grave for three days, and then he will rise again. And three days after this conversation and his crucifixion on the cross, he does rise from the grave and show us that as we partake of this cup together, this symbol of his blood, that that blood cleanses us and washes us and makes us whole. No matter who we are or where we come from or what we have done as we sit here together, we fellowship through this communion with every other church and denomination across the planet that calls on the name of the Lord, not because of our works, but because of his sacrifice and who he is. And so once again, let's pray and we'll partake together. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. And we pray, Lord, as we remember the work that you have done for us, that we would give you back this small moment of gratitude for the work you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing where we left off. And once again, let's pray that the Lord leads us in this study. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy for who you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would be leading us this morning, that you would be directing us, that we would be focused 100% on who you are 
in Jesus' name. Amen. And by way of introduction, that's how I want to start this service. Every human being on the planet is created by and in the image of God. Now, every single person is similar, but every single one of us is different. We all have the same bent to be sinful, to be away from the Lord, not seeking after Him. But every person on the planet has different backgrounds, experiences, personalities, not to mention our nationalities and our cultures. People have different types of spiritualities, and they have different understandings of who God is and different religions. But regardless of all those backgrounds, we want to have the correct perspective, who God really is. Uh, my analogy is very simple. There are people here that are friends of mine. There are, is only one person in this building that's my wife. There's only three people in this that are my kids. And many of you know me. Some of you have only heard of me. And some people on this side of the room may think I'm one way, and this side of the room may think I'm another. And everyone has these wildly different perspectives of who I am. The issue is that I am who I am, regardless of who you think I am. The same thing is true of God himself. God is who God is, and it's up to us to align ourselves with who he really is. And Jesus is showing us that now as he's continuing this confrontation with those around him that are criticizing him, that are coming against him. Who is he really? Well, let's read verses 22 through 30 as we start this portion of this chapter. Verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. And then will his kingdom, how will then his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your servants cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now again, uh, the longest theme of perspectives, I want us to look at a few of them. First one is the demoniac, this man who's demon-possessed. He can't talk, he can't control himself. He's under this spiritual oppression, is brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. That demon is cast out. Now he can talk, he's of sound mind, he's gotten control of himself. What does he think about Jesus? What does he do with this information? The Bible doesn't tell us. Does he just go back to his old life? Does he become a follower of Jesus? Does he say, oh, this is great, and then just goes about his merry way? We have no idea, but he has a very unique perspective. On the same token, I want us to have a perspective of the Pharisees. They are seeing something completely different than everyone else. They are now accusing Jesus of being a sorcerer, of using dark magic to cast out evil spirits. 
that this is silly in and of itself. I want us to think about the crowds and their perspective who are now questioning. Jesus has been healing everyone everywhere. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching the truth and people's lives are being radically changed. He's doing the impossible. When they look at Jesus, their perspective is, is this the son of David? Is this the chosen one? Is this the Messiah of which has been foretold? Is he the king of Israel come to redeem us? Look at these wildly different perspectives. And yet Jesus is there proclaiming who he is. And he's going to confront the Pharisees specifically. The perspective of the Pharisee, though, is that every morning they are reciting what's called the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. As they're going through their lives, they are, con- they are conservatives. They're trying to preserve the Word of God. The problem is they have all these man-made added rules and rituals they put on top of it. They believe that they are the ultimate authority of what is good and righteous and what is from God. They are, think about this perspective now, judging Jesus and saying that he is from the enemy. This man just healed and did the impossible. And so Jesus is, he's coming against them. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? How, how could he be divided against himself? Why would you use darkness to cast out darkness? This, this isn't how this works. And then he says something to them, which we're going to put an asterisk next to it, because this is my personal opinion. And what do we know about my personal opinion in the scripture? We just take it with a grain of salt. They can go in the trash or wherever. I personally believe that Jesus is saying this to them when he says, how then do your servants cast out? I believe he's saying that because they can't. They're not able to. Now, we know historically that the rulers, the Pharisees, especially the Essenes, those are the ones that, um, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. They were even more radical than the Pharisees. They had these offices of exorcists that would go out and they would, quote unquote, exorcise these demons. I think it was all a con and I think it was all magic. And I don't think that it actually happened. Not real magic, like fake illusions. And and I don't think they're able to do it. I don't think they're able to cast out demons. So I believe that when Jesus, and again, personal opinion, when he's confronting them, he's confronting them with the fact with what have you done? What can you do? You know, remember, Jesus is coming from a perspective where people's lives are being changed. He's doing the impossible. Meanwhile, they're saying, well, the only way he can do it is with darkness. And he's saying, well, then how can you guys do it? Now, Jesus is showing them that he has the authority that he claims to have. Because he uses this analogy. That if you go into a strong man's house... You have to be stronger than him. I'm not that tough of a guy, but I like to think I am. If you're going to rob my house and I'm in it, you're going to have to come through me. However, you're going to have to do it. And whatever our perspective is of how tough we are, because I guarantee you I think I'm tougher than I am. You have to use more force than I'm going to resist you by to get me out, to take me out, to bind me or to rob my house. Now, let's say there's a tougher person than me. I don't think they exist. Just kidding. But the tougher person than me, and you go into their house, and you're going to rob them, you have to use more force than they're going to resist you with to take over their home. Now, Jesus is using this analogy, and he's saying, I am 
forcibly exercising demons. I am exercising more force and authority than them. Oh yeah, by the way, how are you guys doing it? And you mean to tell me that it's darkness on top of darkness? Now remember, the demoniac guy, he's still there and he's of sound mind. I'm wondering, what is he thinking? Like, what's going on here? But Jesus tells us about himself after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18. He's sending the disciples, us, into the world. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is who he is, regardless of who your perspective of Jesus is. He is in absolute control of all things. This is important because Jesus is not a guru. He's not a spiritual leader. He's not a teacher. He, he's not an avatar. He's not any of these things that many people are saying that he is. Because just like I said earlier, you can have a perception of who you think I am. But I am who I am. We need to know who God actually is, not what we perceive him to be. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that are supposed to represent God. They're supposed to teach about God. They're supposed to be sharing and leading people to him, the coming Messiah that was foretold of. And instead, they are accusing him of witchcraft. They are planning to kill him. They want to stop him. Their religion and ritual has gotten in the way. And if you're like me, you can see it is very easy to put ourselves in their shoes. I don't want to blame them too much, though, because we can also be like the multitude who is watching this and saying, well, is this the son of David? But they're doing nothing with it. They're doing nothing with it. Yeah, they're not becoming disciples. They're not changing. They're just watching. Now, this is going to be important because Jesus is not done talking. He's continuing along this thread as he's confronting these Pharisees. It's in verses 31 through 37. Therefore, I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit." brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men speak, they will be given account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your, your words, you will be condemned. Now, don't worry. We're going to spend a lot of time here because there is so much here that we need to sift through. Very, very important things. I want you to understand its context. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He just called them a brood of vipers and evil ones. They're supposed to represent God. They are the ones that have the word of God, the law of God, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're going around. And what is Jesus saying to them? Why call them a brood of vipers? He is saying that their doctrine is like poison. And when the things that they're saying is being taught to people, it is killing them. Why? Because it is leading them away from him. It is leading them away from the way of salvation. So let's go back then 
to what Jesus is addressing when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And why is he bringing the Holy Spirit into this conversation? Remember in the previous verses, he says he's casting out demons through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be layering this a little bit. But the Holy Spirit's purpose is to draw us to Jesus. That's his purpose. In fact, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So Jesus has the authority. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and brings us to him. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. I know, let's talk about it a little bit. Number one, no man seeks after God. No, not one. We are broken. But he wishes that none should perish. He wills that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he sends the Holy Spirit to bring us to him, to know that that need, that we need a Savior. And so uh, this is when you get into some really tricky theological issues because there are those people that believe that the Holy Spirit only comes after a few. I don't want to get into the... um, nuances of that right now because I want us to be focused on the perspective of who God is. Jesus just said that you can blaspheme him all day and be saved, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. What does that mean? Well, we know the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says this in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And so we're also, as we're talking about this discussion, seeing the Trinity, aren't we? Because Jesus reveals the Father. The Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. And Jesus brings us to God the Father who is the almighty creator of the universe. And so if we know that Jesus' purpose is to reconcile us and the Holy Spirit's purpose is to bring us to Jesus, what's the Father's purpose? Like, what is he there for? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it tells us, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He does whatever he wants. God created all of us. He placed you where you're at. You are doing what you're doing because he wants to. Like that's the most un-American thing that we have read this morning, isn't it? Like aren't we supposed to live for us? Aren't we the most important thing? Isn't it our life's purpose that needs to be fulfilled? No. No. God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now you may not like any of this. I don't like that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I wish that it could be like some of my family members believe that all roads lead to him. All the different perspectives and all the different backgrounds and all the different religions have some kind of common truth that brings us to God. But just like you may have a misconception of who I am, he is who he is and it's his perspective that matters. Now back to the Holy Spirit, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What examples can we give? Because people are blaspheming Jesus' name all the time. And we are worried sometimes that, can I commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simple. It is rejecting the salvation of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to you. He woos you. 
He's trying to bring you to Christ, and you have free will. You exercise that free will, and you say no. To your last dying breath, you resist him. That is the only way that you cannot be saved. Every sin under heaven can be forgiven except rejecting the forgiveness. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How then can you blaspheme Jesus' name if he's the way of salvation and still be saved? Let's use Peter as a prime example. On the night of Jesus' crucifixion, he denied the Lord three times, rejected. No, I, don't, I never knew him. But Jesus comes to him and reconciles him. Every sin under heaven can be forgiven except for rejecting forgiveness. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is teaching them this. He's sharing this. But ultimately what he's doing here in this text, he is confronting the Pharisees' false doctrine. And he is teaching everyone who he is Because Jesus is teaching them that no man seeks after God. He's saying that they're bad trees bearing bad fruit. That's what he just said. And that they need to be good trees bearing good fruit. And he says bad trees can't bear bad fruit. Here's the point. All of us, aside from God and his reconciliation through Jesus, are bad fruit and bad trees. That doesn't change. No, we need to be saved by faith. By grace. The Pharisees think it's earned. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it is made very clearly No, the, is there salvation in any other? For there is one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's read that correctly this time, right? Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All these different perspectives about who God is. We need to realize that we are a bad tree and that we need to be made new. That is the only way that we can be drawn to God. Our personal relationship with God can only come through the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, do we have boldness and access to God. This is going to be important. There is only one side, one perspective that matters. Who is God and how do we get to know him? I want you to ditch your religion. I want you to ditch your traditions or your habits. The things that you think you're doing that bring you closer to God, they should be coming from a work of salvation. We must realize that we come to God with nothing, the same way that we took communion that we are broken, and that we need to be restored and regenerated by him. What can the Pharisees do with their legalism? Nothing. They can separate. They can isolate. They can judge. They can criticize. They can't heal anyone. They can't restore anyone, and they definitely can't save anyone. They can't bring people to God. But Jesus came to us, as he said earlier, and reveals who the Father is to us, and uses the Holy Spirit to bring us to Him. And so we need to do what David did. When David, who sinned with Bathsheba, who killed Uriah the Hittite, who stole another man's wife, who is confronted with it by conviction and the prophet, he writes a song to God And he begs and he prays and he sings in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And that is what the Lord does for each and every one of us. He makes us completely new. His work, not ours. If you're only hearing from God because you're listening to me teach, then you've got to get out of that. If you're only hearing from God because you're listening to a radio or a certain sermon or a certain pastor, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, no other person. If anything, we should just be introducing you to him and your own personal relationship with him because he is the only one that can do the work. Just like Ezekiel was prophesying about Israel, that Israel and the world through Jesus Christ was going to get a new heart. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, then I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh completely new. That's when you bear new fruit, good fruit. That's when your heart changes. That's when your actions change. And yet we keep trying to become Pharisees. We keep trying to judge and to criticize, thinking that we're the ultimate authority. There's only one cure. There's only one way. I wish it was different. I'll give you another analogy. Let's, uh, let's imagine now that they invent a pill, a medicine. It is a cure for cancer. It cures all cancer. Uh, yes, we need to uh, check that out. We need to make sure it's real. But we would all rejoice if we found out that that was true. But what if somebody else says, well, you know, if you um, use bleach as mouthwash, that'll work just the same. Or somebody else says, no, there's a cheaper, better way outside of China now. That, that works too. No, there's, there's one cure, one way. We would all rejoice at that. Instead, we rebel like, no, 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 no. You know, everyone should just do what they like. Everyone should just do what they feels good. It's a wrong perspective. As much as I wish that, yes, all these different ideas and feelings could bring us closer to God, they simply don't because God is who he says he is, regardless of what our perspective is on it. Now, Jesus is not done yet because the Pharisees and scribes, they want to kick this up a notch. Let's read verses 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a, a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through a dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first so shall it be with this wicked generation. 
Now, Jesus is prophesying to them old and new. He is uh, bringing these things in. I also want you to notice these analogies he's using are from Gentiles. So he's telling the Pharisees these things. He's confronting them. Why is he confronting them? Do you realize what they just said? Show us a sign. They have said to Jesus, who is healing people, casting out demons, doing the impossible, all these things they've seen before their eyes, they're saying, yeah, prove it to us. What are they saying really? I'll be the judge of that. That's what they're saying to Jesus. I will be the judge of what you are saying. Show me, prove it to me. What they're saying is we are the authority of what things are good and not. And Jesus is having none of it. First, he uses Jonah as an example who's three days in the belly of a great fish. It's a prophecy of his three days in the grave for their victory, to make them new, to heal them. Then he uses the queen of Sheba, the Ethiopian queen, who goes to visit King Solomon. How she was seeking that godly wisdom. And then he uses this this deliverance of this man. Now, again, I've got another asterisk. This is my personal opinion about this. So we know what that means, right? It could go in the trash. We don't want to take my personal opinion on Scripture as fact. I personally believe that what he's talking about here, when he says that a man is cleansed from a demon, but then seven come back in, He's speaking of the nation of Israel because everywhere he is going at that time, he's casting out demons, he's healing people, he's healing the sick. But after his resurrection and he ascends into heaven, I believe that it gets way worse. And we know that's the case up to 70 AD when Titus Vespasian, 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 V or T-H, comes in and just completely flattens all of Israel. I think he's prophesying that as well at this time. Again, that's just my opinion. But he's telling them these things, and I wonder, did it go through their mind later on? One thing that I forgot to mention, I wanted to mention in the first service, is that these Pharisees that are criticizing him now, the grace of our Lord, that they are going to receive the gospel message over and over and over and over again, And after his resurrection, going into the book of Acts, Peter is going to confront them. And he's going to say, you who crucified our Lord. And he's still going to give them an opportunity to repent. And many of the priests and the Pharisees are going to get saved later. That's his grace. That's incredible. But here, they're not going to take it. These guys who are trying to figure out how they can kill him. See, when you reject Jesus and you reject the Spirit, you reject God. And it has a consequence. And here they are demanding from God, you tell me, have you been in that position? I'll believe God when he, te- when, when he comes and makes me happy, I'll judge him. You know the Bible says to do the exact opposite. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, and you will seek me and find me. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We seek him, not the other way around. Wait wait a minute, didn't you tell us that the Spirit comes to us? Yeah, I know, I know. I don't get it either. But we are supposed to seek after him. We are the seekers. We journey to him. And he meets us step by step. He brings the Spirit. We make a step by faith. We come to him. He sends more. And it's a journey that we experience together. You got to get the Pharisees out of the way. You got to get your religion and your habits and your judgment and your criticism out of the way. Are you seeking who God is 
or are you telling him who you think he is? Are you seeking who he is or are you telling him who you think he is? Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Underline it. Diligently seek him. Seek and you shall find. Ask and you shall receive. We read that earlier. He came to us. Jesus descended and became a man and he showed us who the Father is. He revealed the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit. And it's supposed to be a part of our daily process, reconciling. Why, why, why? Where are we supposed to go with all this? Remember when God created Adam? He walked with God in the coolness of the day. Jesus came to reconcile us back to God, to bring us back to where we can walk with him and experience him on a personal level to reconnect with our Creator who created us for His goodwill and pleasure. Instead, we sit here and judge Him and criticize and talk about who we think He is. How about we actually find out who He is for you and for me? Well, this gets us to our most important part. We've talked about all these different perspectives. What is God's perspective of us? those that are seeking him out, those that are diligently serving. We know we're broken. We know that we are sinners. We know that we're messing this up. We're not righteous. No, not one, not without him. What does he think about us? Well, he tells us now in verses 46 through 50. He says, while he was still walking, excuse me, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside speaking to him, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What did I just read here? If you come from an atheistic Catholic family like I do, with all this religious tradition, and you remember these, these temples and cathedrals and churches with all these different statues, and there's Jesus' mother up there. And we were told that we're supposed to go to them. They're closer to Jesus. You go to them, and then they'll lead you to him. Like you get, if you get an introduction to an introduction, you might get an introduction. Here, Jesus is saying, get rid of all of that. You are closer to me than my own mother, as reverently as we want to treat her, because she is the mother of God. You are closer to me than my own flesh and blood because we took communion today through his flesh and his blood. We are reconciled to him. That's his perspective of us. Stop going through all these other people. Stop going through these things and traditions and habits. Stop thinking that there's all these different passes to get to God. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, we come boldly to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Seek him. Be on his side. Discover who he is. I find it interesting that just like in the days of the Pharisees today, so many doctrines of man are contrary to the very words that he said. Will you be on his side? Will you be seeking him? That's our question this morning. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for revealing more about who you are to us. We pray that we'd be on our own journey seeking you out. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us through these steps of faith as we diligently seek you. We want to be obedient to you. We want to listen to you. We want to be filled with your spirit. And we want to walk in the fulfillment of what you created us for. Help us to understand these things and to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there'll be ushers and elders up here praying for you, opportunities. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.